It is a privilege for me to welcome you to this celebratory conference in honor of the life and work of Professor Marcus Bart. We also hope that this conference will serve to encourage further research in his writings. Princeton Seminary is host to the Marcus Bart papers in our Bart Center. Professor Bart was a New Testament scholar, but he was much, much more than that. He was deeply involved in ecumenical discussions, though he had, the, though he had his criticisms of official ecumenics and in ecumenical dialogue generally. He was greatly interested in Jewish-Christian relations and devoted a number of his writings to promoting healing and healthy exchange in those relations. His career, which started here in the States and ended at the University of Basel, spanned tumultuous decades in social political history and in church life. His exegetical theology anticipated in important ways the work of later scholars whose work was perhaps less groundbreaking than it is often assumed. Marcus Bart was ahead of his times. On a personal note, my wife Mary and I were students of Professor Bart in his final semester of teaching at the University of Basel in the winter semester of 1984-1985. I will never forget that when I laid my Testat Buch in front of him, he glanced at the name on the cover, looked up at me, looked way up at me, and said, I have been expecting you. You will come to my house. It turned out that as chair of what was then called the Karl Barth Nachlass Commission, he already knew of the project proposal that had won me a Fulbright grant to study in Switzerland that year, and had, in fact, been the person who granted permission for me to gain access to unpublished writings in the Karl Barth archive. His invitation to come to his house was one I quickly acted upon. In the end, I would have, as I recall, six meetings with him over the course of a year on the sun porch of his home on the Inslingerstrasse in Rien, where we would smoke pipes companionably and talk. He was more than a teacher to me. He was a mentor by his own choice and at his own initiative, always generous with his time. My wife Mary worked at that time as a typist for Marcus's brother, Christoph, who was bringing his Old Testament theology into an English translation for publication. Between her service to Christoph and my mentoring relation to Marcus, we had many wonderful conversations, Mary and I, over dinner about our most recent visits either to the Bruderholz or to Rien. Niklaus Peter and his wife Franey were our best friends in Basel and helped us immeasurably in assimilating to Basel culture and the rhythms of university life. Other members of the family were met later at conferences on the Leuenberg or in the university. I am very pleased to say that two members of Marcus and Rosemary's family are here with us for this event. Their daughter Anna and their daughter-in-law Shabnam Edith. Their presence here is a gift to us and I would ask that you please join me in welcoming them. The Center for Bart Studies does all of its conferences on a shoestring budget. This particular conference was finally made possible through a grant from the University of Aberdeen, which allowed us to bring our two Aberdonian speakers here. Our sincere thanks to Phil Ziegler and Paul Nimmo 
for work behind the scenes to secure grants uh, support for us uh, at their institution. The program of our conference is before you in your packets. I will say nothing more about it now. I simply wish to thank all of our speakers for devoting their time to researching the work of Marcus Bart and writing what I'm sure will be excellent papers. And I want to thank above all Kate Dugan, the person without whom nothing that the Center for Bart Studies does would be done. It is Kate who has been responsible for all the planning, all of the organizational details, big and small. In this, she has had support from student workers Nicola White and Luke Zara. And finally, I would like to, to thank Ken Henke and his staff at Special Collections in our library for preparing the wonderful displays on, li on the life and work of Marcus Bart, which you will find in the cases directly across from the circulation desk just around the corner. Our first speaker this morning is David McLaughlin. David is professor of New Testament at Atlantic School of Theology in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, he is a one-time assistant to Marcus Bart from 1974 to 1977 and wrote his dissertation under Marcus. Uh, we thought we could do no better than to have someone who worked so intimately and closely with Marcus to kick off our conference, David. Thank you, Bruce. Indeed, it's my pleasure to be here uh, today and to start this conference um, for us to consider one of the great exegetes of my time. When I look at my students, they wonder what time that is, and I always <laughs> remind somewhat back there. But nonetheless, I think as you, you intimated and said, uh, Bruce, Marcus in many ways was uh, a bit of ahead of his time. And um, uh, when you mentioned visiting Marcus in his house, I remember the uh, uh, the house itself, for sure. I was up there many times to, to talk to him about my own work and about his work because uh, just after I became his assistant, of course, I realized that he was working on the two-volume commentary on Ephesians. And uh, although it looks beautiful on the library shelf, two wonderful volumes side by side, <laughs> the manuscript was this high um, that he brought to me and said, here, um, start reading. And so I started working through, really, um, I have an, an example of what kind of things were done in that time with the technology available. And I remember one time when look, talking to him about my thesis topic, he said, you know, we should have a computer somewhere where the wheels just whirl and we put in a request, has anybody done this topic? And the answer comes back and so forth. And so uh, uh, I said, yes, so someday maybe we'll have that. Um, and, uh, but it's my pleasure to speak about him, indeed, and to, uh, uh, to begin this conference. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to be the first speaker because I'll get my stuff in before the hearings begin in Washington. So I thought everybody's attention is going to be on that anyway. Um, so you're going to be, uh, pay attention to what I have here, at least in the first hour. Um, my topic is really the influence of Marcus Bart on his father's thinking about baptism. And uh, if being the firstborn son of a famous father were not enough notoriety, a direct mention and endorsement of the son's work and influence would be even more a boost to one's career. 
The remarks Karl Barth made about the work of his New Testament scholar son Marcus in the last volume of the Church Dogmatics were sure to place Marcus in the limelight of the academic theological biblical world. It is a well-known tribute, but it must also be valued and assessed from what its claim is. It was an amazing confession by Karl Barth, and he makes clear in the preface that although he had already published an essay and had already made comments about the sacrament of baptism in his dogmatics, his son's work had the effect of creating a major shift in his thinking about baptism. It was in one way high praise, yet in another also a true lament. The son's work had gone by, uh, gone by and large unnoticed by the theological world, according to Bart, uh, Karl Barth. Marcus's book, however, most probably had great influence in his coming to the United States as a New Testament teacher in the early 50s. This is not to say that Karl Barth always endorsed Marcus' New Testament work and opinions. The somewhat embarrassing mention of Marcus' theory about the dating of the Gospels was one. Karl expressed some embarrassment about Marcus' theory regarding the dating of John's Gospel as the earliest Gospel, and we find that in the Gesamtausgabe, uh, the Gespräche of 1963 in volume 41, where Bart, Karl Barth uh, has conversation with the Rhineland youth pastors. As an example of, as he's put it, all the endless and many possibilities in the search for the Ur Gospel. And so he says, and I quote, I have a son who is a New Testament teacher over there in America, and just between you and me, he is of the unbelievable opinion that actually John's Gospel is the original form of the tradition, and that the Synoptic Gospels are just a commentary on John. <clears throat> this time I think Marcus was in Chicago. And Carl continues, I can't go along with this one, you understand. I tell you, this is a personal example of all that is possible in this area of study. I am still too deep in the 19th century, and the editor, I think Eberhard Busch mentions Holtzman's work of 1863 on the, on the two-source theory. I am still too deep in the 19th century so that I cannot follow my own son on this without qualification. Thank goodness he has not so far published this anywhere. <laughs> an insight into some of the possible family tensions in theology. The Bible can do that to us, and I think Marcus knew that well. But on the topic of baptism and after reading Marcus Barth's Die Taufe, Karl Barth says he had come to a rather different view of the matter. In the preface, Karl Barth refers to his rather different view as also a radically new one on baptism and in parentheses, specifically water baptism. Not just what it is, but what it is not. Whatever the influence the son had upon the father, it is a curiosity that in the fragment 4.4, the father not once quotes or names his son as the direct source of any specific remarks or insights. Not that this would have to be the case, and this would not deny in any way that Marcus' work on baptism did cause his father to reflect once again and critically upon this topic. As well, Karl Barth could comment on scripture quite capably for himself. <clears throat> it would have to be noted, too, that Marcus does not quote his father's works in Die Taufe either. Some in New Testament studies have maintained that 
that Marcus only and simply repeated his father's insight and theology in his own work. A quick glance at De Taufa would surely silence this criticism when one realizes that the book itself is entirely devoted to the exegetical task of reading the baptismal text in the New Testament and not a, sim a simple proof texting of Karl Barth's theology. It deserves a reckoning, not because it comes from one of the Barths, but much more because it is a serious engagement with the New Testament and the scholarship that surrounded it at that time. Before we embark in any detail upon the consideration of more specific relationship between the two Barths on this topic, we should give some consideration to the book by Marcus Barth, since it is not well known in English circles. The work of Karl at this point has most probably overshadowed Marcus' study on this topic, although Marcus showed since the publication of both De Taufa and the fragment, that he can indeed represent his own thinking and was a formidable exegete and defender of what he heard in New Testament texts. Karl Barth not only names his son's book, but quotes him as using the synoptic saying of Jesus about the Jerusalem temple with respect to Karl Barth's work on baptism previously, namely that not one stone remains upon another. Uh, of the father's former thinking on this topic. In typical Marcus Barth fashion, one would have to say that not only were the stones of Karl's former thinking dismantled, but in the exegesis itself, Marcus dug deeper into the foundation of Karl Barth's structure on this topic. A brief look into the book itself, Die Taufe ein Sakrament Fragezeichen. <laughs> It's interesting that often when this work is mentioned, they forget the question mark at the end of that. So in the translation that I'm working on, I put the title as a question, is baptism a sacrament? So that we don't lose that. Of course, just think about it, the title itself will convey something quite different. Baptism, a sacrament, period. Which would be the opposite of what really Marcus uh, was, uh, was, would achieve. A brief look into the book. <clears throat> Its method, scope, and concentration upon its task quickly brings another metaphor forward for consideration. As Marcus goes about his task, the reader surely would say that another metaphor is called for here, and not so much stones upon another, but not one stone left unturned. We abound in sayings this morning, but as his father saw early in Marcus's life and career, the other saying also comes to mind for Marcus Bart. It's about the Bible. I thought somebody would say stupid at the end of that, so I left the brackets empty. For the... We can consider the preface for Marcus Bart uh, from his work on baptism and in De Taufe itself. He says at the beginning in his preface, this book is comprised of the specific exegesis of individual New Testament passages that speak about baptism. The exegesis of passages beyond these ones will also be indispensable if the conversation about baptism is to proceed further in a fruitful way and is to come to any desired conclusion. If we intended a new development of the church's teaching on baptism and a reform of the practice of baptism, this would belong to a more deliberate engagement in the systematic and liturgical reflections proper to this topic. Even the most prudent exegesis of the Bible could not anticipate, nor avoid, nor replace this required reflection and work. In fact, my purpose here is limited to making an exegetical contribution and to giving stimulation to new questions and research into baptism. 
May my work here increase our joy in hearing Jesus Christ's command to baptize and in our proper and true obedience expressed through it, unquote. From this declaration, then, we hear Marcus Barth's desire to stimulate new reflections on this ancient and seemingly fundamental rite of the church. It is clear from the beginning that a sacramental understanding of baptism will be on the defensive, but not because of preconceived theological and ecclesial biases, though these are not impossible, to be sure, but because the author signals from the start that the agenda here is to hear the text again. One could say that a negative conclusion to the question in the title comes out on almost every page, but it does not happen without considering well and seriously the various sacramental and non-sacramental readings of the many aspects of the passages that the author encounters. It is also not to be ignored or unheard his wish at the end of this statement, namely that our joy may be increased and our obedience to the Great Commission be proper and strong. The implications for what is a sacrament, of course, float through every page as well. And this will no doubt be the topic of more than one conversation over these days. The book itself has a clear structure and follows the New Testament canonical order of its documents. There is a theological historical comment here, since in the five chapters, Marcus Bard addresses the New Testament texts which speak of baptism by beginning with the Synoptic Gospels. This sets Jesus' baptism out first and foremost. Marcus Bart, however, does not see Jesus' water baptism as necessarily the foundation of Christian baptism. In particular, Jesus' baptism signals a baptism of death, as well as marking and heralding a baptism in the Spirit. It is, though, this foundation step in the salvific, it is, though, uh, through this uh, foundation step in the salvific story of God's visitation among human beings, an account of Jesus' obedience following God's call and mission, namely solidarity with sinners. The Spirit descends after this event, not as a part of it, for Marcus Bart. Then come the texts in the Acts of the Apostles, where the Spirit is seen active in working before, during, and after water baptism. Then Paul's letters, and then the later epistles of non-Pauline authorship, and finally the Johannine writings to close out the study. Marcus Bart has attempted to address every passage in the New Testament that refers expressly to or are understood to address baptism. His modus operandi is to examine every text and allow both the sacramental and non-sacramental interpretations to have their say. The question as formulated in the title is posed practically on every page, the print format follows that of the church dogmatics with the larger print carrying the argument and the smaller print, the sources and more scholarly detailed discussion. I point that up because it'll come back up again in something I want to share with you this morning. One of the few reviews written about the book is by Floyd Filson in Theology Today and it appeared in April 1953, uh, in the 19, April 1953 issue of the journal. It is remarkably short, given the length of Die Taufe at 554 pages. I think there's only two pages in theology today uh, as the review. Filson is quite positive about the contribution of Marcus Barth's work, but also raises two main objections. One is that the book is, to quote him, too long and heavy. <clears throat> I thought, well, <laughs> 
Does he mean the weight of the book or does he mean it's too dense for its reading? I wondered what Filson would say to Marcus's two volumes on the Epistle to the Ephesians in the Anchor Bible series, longer than the commentary on the 27 chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Filson also proposes, and I quote, it could have made its points in half the space, unquote. I've heard this critique of Karl Barth's work as well. One is reminded of the same complaint from Emperor Joseph in the movie Amadeus when he explains to Mozart that his opera, The Marriage of Figaro, just simply has too many notes. Mozart's retort may well apply here too. Which verses or issues would you propose to delete? If one is to speak about baptism in the New Testament and in any way to try or to avoid uh, presuppositions and preconceived notions to enter the discussion, several passages and issues will have to come into view. Marcus Barth distinguishes Christian baptism from the four areas of possible historical and theological origins. The general areas of Hellenistic mysteries and Jewish proselyte baptism are dismissed as origins for Christian baptism. And this comes up time and again in his discussion. As well, John the Baptist himself and or Old Testament prophecies are also excluded. Nevertheless, Filson is right to point out that Marcus Bart does see the role of John the Baptist as important, and if not essential to the baptism of Jesus and the resonances with the Old Testament theology, as playing a significant role in the meaning of Christian baptism. Marcus does not ask this question, uh, does ask this question often as he works his way through the uh, several New Testament passages that relate to the topic. For one good reason, the area of Hellenistic mysteries and Jewish proselyte baptisms are major options if any historical roots are to be sought out. The mysteries also provide a major point of comparison for the New Testament text, and he does this time and time again. It also raises the question, but what is a sacrament? Uh, and just looking in those two areas, there are many answers, I'm sure, but there are two distinctive answers to that question in, for example, the Hellenistic mysteries or Christian baptism. And often this gives rise to the debate, I think, um, in, in, uh, in our conversations today. Marcus Bart often tests scholarly discussions and perceptions of Christian baptism against this background and understanding, often points out in his reading that the New Testament texts the text does not intentionally go there or need to go there in order to honor the Christian act of baptism. For him, one would need also to be sensitive to this influence or modeling in all, almost all passages that speak of Christian baptism. Filson craftily suggests that the main argument of De Taufa can be found summarized on pages 525 to uh, sorry, 522 to 25 of the book. Notice the 554 pages can be reduced for him down to this. But he gives, a, I think, a very good capsule statement about what, what Marcus is about. The New and quote him, the New uh, he quotes Bart, the New Testament statements concerning water baptism are remarkably unified and harmonious. Complete obedience is impossible without the act figuratively described as baptism. This baptism is neither a copy of the Jewish baptism nor um, an analyzing of the Hellenistic mysteries. In the entire New Testament, baptism is a work which God commands men to do, 1953 language. With it, they answer to the saving work of God and the proclamation of this saving work. In the performance of baptism, the person baptized and the baptizer, and with them 
or through them the congregation confess before God and the world their knowledge of the significance and effect of the death of Christ and the working of the Spirit of God. They confess in water baptism their desire for the baptism of the Spirit and their sure hope or trust that the baptism of the Spirit will occur. Baptism is a work in the sense of an offer, a motion, an affirmation, an attestation, a genuine service of God in its meaning, its nature, and its working. It is nothing else but prayer." Unquote. The other issue Filson raises is the matter of too many, uh, and I think it's important to, to understand the theological issues involved. Um, the other issue is the matter of, and as he, as, uh, as he says, too fine a distinction to keep the free, gracious working of God entirely separate from and unbound by any external action or right, unquote. Filson affirms this concern, however, and deems the point a good one, keeping the free working of God separate from the external action or right. It is a good point, he says, and it is the basic point of the New Testament. His caution is that a New Testament passage seems to assume that divine grace and the external right work together and do not compromise grace or make the right automatic. With Emperor uh, Joseph, we may well say at this point, well, there you have it. The central issue in the discussion of the sacramental meaning of baptism, overall, Filson's review is positive and renders the general position Marcus Bart takes with respect to baptism. I do agree with Filson when he asserts, future study of baptism should take account of this book. It combines intensive study of individual passages critique of presuppositions of modern study, and a concern for the deeper theological issues at stake about the summary. Uh, sorry. Um, Marcus Bart does keep uh, the water baptism of Jesus and the descent of the Spirit upon him separate, despite how close they come in the gospel narratives. One place where this does appear dramatically is in Luke's account of the praying Jesus after baptism. Even the Greek style of the verse that describes this sets the water baptism of the people and of Jesus apart and having been done before the, the Spirit descends upon him. And Jesus, for Marcus is important to note, is at prayer when this happens. This distinction does persist throughout and is picked up by Karl Barth in his discussion in the fragment. As most know, Karl Barth addresses the baptism of the spirit before water baptism, and this seems to confirm Marcus Barth's point about the meaning and goal of water baptism. Christian baptism is a human act in the sense that it confirms and expresses the human having heard the gospel and having the intention of serving it, then takes a step in that light and in that direction. I'll keep my eye on the time here because I know we're... <laughs> um, another compl well, it's interesting. He picks, uh, Filson picks up another text, 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, and he, and he laments that Barkas Bart spent 42 pages on that text alone. Um, <laughs> I think if, if Marcus, uh, I don't know if he ever answered Filson or not, but uh, I, th I can hear an Marcus answering, so what else are you going to do in life besides read the Bible and talk about it anyway? Uh, I can hear, uh, sorry, I uh, preempt myself. I can hear Marcus in my head saying, but what else were you going to do with your life and then read and discuss the New Testament? 
Marcus always did this joyfully and with rigor. I, have, I had a semester with him, one term, one whole term, on Galatians 2, 5 to 21. We spent the whole term on that. Um, now, I just uh, I, I want to hurry on here. Um, but one thing I did want to share with you, and I, when I came here, uh, I, I was looking at the displays out front, and I was really happy to see that Rosemary Bart is part, is part of that. Uh, part of that display. And uh, uh, now, interesting, uh, Rosemarie uh, uh, Bart Heffley sent me, um, I think I brought it with me, uh, she sent me a copy of Rosemary Bart Oswald's review of Die Taufe. She said, You may want to use this at some point. <laughs> well, I read this and I thought, That's really good. She thought maybe, um, uh, I think I did bring her, her comments, yeah. Um, she says, uh, I recently found the enclosed rough draft which my mother, Rosemary Bart Oswald, wrote about my father's book, Die Taufe, Ein Sacrament. She also left the question mark off at the end. It appears to me to be, but who's going to quibble? Uh, it appears to me to be a kind of book review. That is my father's writing at the bottom of the page, verfasst um, von Rosemary, exclamation point. So uh, written by Rosemary. Uh, and I interpret the exclamation point after her name to mean that he was surprised about what he read. For what reason? I do not know. The handwriting at the top of the page, Herzogurus Marcus, uh, here, and when I saw them, I didn't even bother much to read it or translate or whatever. I thought, that's Marcus' writing. Uh, you can't read it. <laughs> it, was, it was very hard to... Um, the handwriting at the top of the page uh, is obviously my father's as well. My mother attended theology lectures, which I didn't know this. Uh, my mother attended theology lectures in Basel, and it was in a lecture of Karl Barth that my parents met. My mother continued, this is more importantly for me at least at this point, my mother continued to be a close Bible reader her whole life. And uh, I want to share that with you because I think her voice uh, in, in this whole... Uh, I don't know if she'll come up again in a sense, but I mean, I think uh, the role of Rosemary in, in Marcus's life, his children as well, uh, uh, was important. She was a mainstay to him, uh, but she was also, in my experience as well, a close reader of the Bible uh, and was formidable uh, uh, conversationalist in, in biblical and, uh, and ecclesial texts. So uh, she writes this uh, regarding the book Die Taufe, Ein Sacrament, uh, an exegetical contribution to the conversation about church baptism by Rosemary Bart Oswald. So she says, not much of what the church offers is taken up from it so meticulously and so well liked as baptism. Baptism is the practice which at the same time has become equally a popular custom. Even those who do not look much to the church because they already know everything about what is good and right bring their little ones with joy to the church to have them receive the sacrament of baptism. It is nice that the church does everything for all concerned on this point, to make it right, and one could welcome this joy over baptism, if it were not for the shocking amount of superstition along with and amid and behind the Christian belief in baptism had not also taken hold. No one knows what is actually bestowed upon a child in baptism. As it is said, one should not and cannot know this. Baptism is precisely a sacrament that is a mystery. One should not seek to get behind it. 
as much as the pastor drums into his confirmation candidates that the Protestant church has no role of mediator between God and human beings. At this point, this teaching appears to show a gap since the, the general understanding dictates that the candidate receives something in baptism. Is baptism a sacrament? Is it a means of grace entrusted to the church? With these questions, the author of this book named above has pursued his task. He has examined all the passages in the New Testament which deal expressly with baptism and some others from ancient times that were brought to bear on baptism, asking always, what does baptism mean here? What does this specific passage say about its performance? He has not decided beforehand on any specific answer as truly different as are the accounts of baptism in the Synoptic Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, and from the difficult texts in Paul and from the complicated stylistic expression of other New Testament epistles. The book reports uh, on accounts of the different points of view with which the individual authors of the New Testament writings saw baptism. Astonishingly, it turns out, however, that from this engaging method of perspective, that the variety of biblical authors only serves the clarification of the one Christian baptism. It turns out that baptism in it is, in, is, no, is in no way a means of grace that the church bestows. It is also not a sacrament in the sense that by a visible action, something invisible is enacted. Baptism with water indicates much more that the candidate presents oneself as someone who finds it necessary not just to be washed, but also to be born from above. Paul names this in the light of the resurrection as a dead person about to be buried. This repentance expressed in a ritual, this silence but loud prayer and the confession which comes to expression in this act are given to the one who wants to baptize with the Holy Spirit. All this belongs to the essence and meaning of water baptism. The concerns of some religious groups who in the state church have missed the regard for the Holy Spirit have now found a voice in this book. By this digging in the old well, much old and new rubble is uncovered. For those who have little interest in the rubble, they may be comforted by skipping over the small print in their reading of the book. All the essentials for the exegesis one finds in the larger printed sections. The large print, uh, um, I was noting here, uh, while the large print may be a comfort to the reader, but it's a woe to the translator. Um, to the attentive readers, the longer they read, the more the question emerges whether in our Reformed Church the practice of baptism corresponds to the biblical view, and whether the Reformers have not in their defense against the threatening enthusiast movement missed an essential step in the Reformation. Rosemarie Bach. Bart Oswald, uh, I believe in 1951. I think you can hear from that. This is not someone who just simply read the book and said, that was good work, I enjoyed it. But someone who was engaged, understood, and wants to bring forward what the burden of the message uh, is. This is Rosemary uh, Bart, uh, the uh, uh, Marxist spouse. When considering the context, uh, so I think I thought I wanted to share that with you this morning simply, uh, I know take some time, I'm going to keep an eye on time here, um, but I just wanted to, uh, to sort of confirm to and affirm her voice and really in Marx's life and work and uh, that it, it um, 
uh, it was indeed, uh, I think she was indeed a, a discussion partner for many of his, uh, uh, his um, uh, scholarship, much of his scholarship. Um, now, I, I'm starting to run out of time. Um, when considering the context for the not one stone upon the other remark, we must note that Karl Barth specifically names his essay written in 1943 on the topic of baptism. Karl Barth himself recognized the need to revisit the essay and the approach in it in the light of Marx's work. <clears throat> um, he had extensive, made extensive comments as well uh, in, uh, in, the, uh, in the preface, uh, which I'm sure many of you have read or, or can go back and read that. But when looking at the 1943 document more closely in the light of Marcus Barth's work, Karl Barth's assessment of his position comes uh, uh, quite precisely and understandably out of what he has read from his son's work. More precisely, what would prompt Marcus Bart to comment that his father's thought on baptism would need to be dismantled such that not one stone would remain upon the other? There are some aspects that appear to me to provide some answers to this question in the 43 document itself. The first one is the lack of concentrated exegesis. Not that Karl Barth ignored the Bible, far from it. But from Marcus Bart's perspective as a New Testament scholar, he is surely right to draw our attention to the Bible and how a text on baptism and indeed any text may be heard. Of course, it is understandable that too many words would not fit the essay of 1943 and would probably obscure the main point of the argument, which for Bart was who is a fit candidate to be baptized, which is re really what he's trying to bring uh, to the um, Karl Barth to bring to the church. Nevertheless, it is about the Bible for Marcus and more careful reading of it, even if some stones do not remain in place and would have need to be placed in a new order or perhaps thrown out altogether. It is clear that Marcus Barth's book and the fragment have very different approaches but often come to similar conclusions. The former is clearly an exegetical contribution and so is determined and structured by the passages and the sections of the New Testament in which they are found. The other, has uh, a more systematic theological reflection and discussion of the topic. Karl Barth begins with the baptism in the spirit and then proceeds to water baptism, as I mentioned in, in, the, in the fragment. Marcus confirms this, indeed, in his writing. Uh, he attends to each text in turn, and for each he draws out the distinction between spirit and water baptism in the text. No matter how soon after Jesus' water baptism the descent of the Spirit occurs, it is a distinct event for Marcus. Uh, Jesus' water baptism is an act of representation for sinful humanity and portrays Jesus' identification with sinners. It is not done to satisfy uh, and proclaim his own sinlessness, rather to make it clear that his lot is cast with those who must confess their sins and call upon God's gift of the Spirit. A second more serious issue that emerges, of course, is the use of sacramental language by Karl Barth. This is not surprising in one way since Karl Barth does still lift up the significance and importance of baptism in his article. Given his audience and the fact that church officials would hear him, this would be critical to do. His position in this paper is that baptism is an important, if not crucial, moment in a Christian's life. So we hear that it should have the importance it needs and receives in its place and role in the Christian life and its relationship to the salvation event in Jesus Christ. In reading through the essay, I note both pro and con statements about sacramentality, however, of baptism for Karl Barth. For example, he can make some very high statements about water baptism. Water baptism is the musterion anagenosios, 
the sacramentum, regeniat suronis, uh, what befalls a man or a person in that uh, participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Marcus would challenge that second part. Is it in the death and resurrection? No. Um, another, all this, namely faith in Christ, his own renewal, becoming a partner in divine grace, a member of the church, is the reality which is portrayed in water baptism. Baptism, another one, baptism is holy and hallowing, though we have yet to see why and how far. It makes a man his child and a member of his covenant, awakening faith through his grace. It's interesting, the role of faith in baptism at that point, and calling a man to, to life in the church uh, and, with, and the church's witness. The power or potency of baptism consists in this, that an element in the church's message, it is a free word and deed of Jesus Christ himself. Baptism is no dead or dumb representation, but a living and expressive one. Its potency lies in the fact that it comprehends the whole movement of sacred history, or the Heilsgeschichte, unquote. Now, these are not only uh, things about baptism, um, in uh, things said about baptism uh, in the uh, essay. There are statements that uh, depict also water baptism as plainly a human act. Karl Barth declares that baptism is a sacrament like the Lord's Supper, but also that all activities of the church are in their own way sacramental since they involve signs and symbols. The potency of baptism is in the command and word of Christ, not in itself. Karl Barth has much to say about the role of symbolism and declares, I quote, one must not press it too far, he says. And again, there was talk of an opus operatum of the correctly administered baptismal rite which becomes powerful and effectual by its own means, just as faith does in the teaching of Zwingli. To this, it must be said that the potency of baptism cannot be a potency dependent on itself or one which itself, produce, uh, one which itself produces its effects. I cite these passages as an illustration of the unclarity or ambivalence on baptism as a sacrament on Karl Barth's part. The article is in need of a closer look at the text quoted to see what is said and what is not said regarding baptism. There is much good in, the, in this article and much to reflect upon, but the voices of the text's critique of what baptism is or is not also need to be heard. In this sense, one stone needs to be taken from the other, but um, in his essay, there is much indeed to applaud. Karl Barth also draw, does draw the Bible into uh, the discussion for example, by citing the story in Acts 8.14 in which the Samaritans heard the preaching of Philip and were baptized in Jesus' name. They did not receive the Holy Spirit. To quote, is not this passage together with Acts 19 an explicit warning against any view which would ascribe to the baptismal water, the ecclesiastical rite, or the parts of the church's proclamation in general, their own even relatively independent power of action over against the free enactment of the Lord? Karl Barth here refers to 1 Corinthians 6.11, a text not raised and an aspect of Karl Barth's work that was uh, considered as ignored in a later criticism. Karl Barth points out that the passage does not say that the washing, sanctifying, and justifying happens in baptism, but in the name of the Lord and in the Spirit of God. Um, this is not to say that these quotes settle the view uh, Karl Barth had on the sacraments or baptism. 
he does speak about the human agent in the right, although the human agent, uh, uh, the human being, is the second main actor, uh, along with the spirit of God as the first. This is uh, to say, however, that the language alone is ambivalent and leaves one wondering if one can maintain the correctness of insistence, uh, the correctness of this language in its insistence, it is, uh, uh, how can one maintain the insistence it is not for infants? If baptism does convey such power, witness, and assurance that Karl Barth names in his essay, then why would one not administer it to children? In many ways, the essay is concerned more about who is the proper candidate for the rite of baptism, an adult or an infant. Resoundingly, Karl Barth answers the former. It flows not so much from the issue of comprehension as such as it, as it does from the concern to have adult Christians in the world and who can take up the mission and service to God in the world. Uh, 10 o'clock. Um, what I want, want to say, <laughs> talk about too many words here. Um, it seems to me that Marcus Bard did something that when I was, I did my thesis uh, on the Revelation to John, last book of the New Testament, and uh, uh, Marcus and I had, had interesting conversations with him. Um, and I read uh, Paul Maynier's commentary on Revelation uh, at that time. And then I read uh, William Stringfellow's book uh, on uh, an ethic for Christians, the title right, an ethic for Christians and other aliens in a strange land. And I mentioned to Marcus, you know, I said, I, what I see is that Paul Minear did the exegetical work that allowed Stringfellow to write his social and theological work. Um, because we came to the interpretation of the beast and all the sorts of things in the, and the ins and outs of all those, of all those texts in the Revelation. Paul Minear put handles on it for him to see that. I think in a similar way, Marcus Barth put handles on the text that um, perhaps Karl Barth earlier would quote as, uh, as what would sound very much like the sacrament of baptism, but Marcus really challenged those in reading the text again and hearing it again. Um, another issue that comes up in, in the critique, uh, uh, I think um, I was thinking about today's conference. Actually, we should spend the rest of the time reading the uh, uh, Taufa and uh, the New Testament passages on on baptism, uh, but nonetheless, um, what uh, uh, I was, was reading also Stanley F uh, Fowler's uh, critique uh, of Bart in his book, Not uh, More Than a Symbol. Uh, he is a, um, a Baptist uh, scholar in New Testament, uh, uh, a theologian, and um, he criticizes almost every, every piece of exegetical work that Karl Barth does in the fragment. But what I think needs to be done there, and I, 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 was, I had a few examples but, um, to, to pull out, but nonetheless, uh, I think what has to be done is to, is to bring Marcus Barth's work to bear on that. If, you read, if you're going to read 4.4, you now need to read the 554 pages of Marcus's work. Uh, in order to understand what the exegetical uh, foundation would be for many of the theological assertions um, that, uh, that Karl Barth would, uh, uh, would make there. The last part of my paper was going to simply say, but with the implications for the church, and I think that's, that's typical Marcus Bart, is you don't get away with reading the Bible and just simply walk away and say, that's wonderful, all this information I have in my head. Or as someone from Newfoundland would say, now I'm stuffed with knowledge. Uh, Marcus would say, yes, and where does that take us with respect to the community, to the church? And so to raise, uh, there was one critical issue that, that Fowler does raise, and I think it'd be interesting to try to follow this. I think Marcus does follow this through. Um, he criticizes Boltmann's position that the, the cross and resurrection of Christ is somehow sets up the possibility of salvation, 
Now the actuality of salvation is now could be, and Fowler reads this very, very strongly in this way, the actual, in other words, Jesus' death is fine for Jesus to die on the cross and be raised from the dead, but what's that got to do with me? Well, my baptism is the point at which it says, God says to me, etc. and so on. This is the theology that, uh, that I think that Fowler is pointing to, and he from that perspective criticizes uh, um, Karl Barth's perspective on, uh, in, his, uh, in his exegesis. I think it's a, a real question, uh, and it needs to be uh, kind of discussed and, and worked through. But I, uh, I think Marcus would certainly help us to understand um, where, you know, texts that seem to say that baptism is washing and sanctification and so on is really pointing back to the real point at which um, uh, we have been sanctified, washed, etc., and that is in the cross, uh, uh, the death, and uh, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, another text is Romans 6. We don't have time to do that, but nonetheless, uh, remember I raised the whole issue of the sacramentality of baptism is often based upon baptism um, represents not only the death going into the water, but also the rising out of the water, and therefore the death and resurrection of Jesus are, are captured. In, and from the perspective of the Hellenistic mysteries as a critique on that, Marcus certainly points out, no. In Romans 6, 3, and 4, our resurrection is a future resurrection, so that we will be raised in a resurrection like his. In the meantime, I think is, uh, and I think Fowler's right here to say that verse 11 says, reckon yourselves as having been buried. Uh, that doesn't come out very strong in Karl Barth's, although it comes out, but not as strong as Marcus uh, when he says baptism at that point, in, according to Romans 6, is a burial. Uh, and I think in his 1970 lectures, I listened to them uh, at one point, and he says something like, not a very good thing to, to present for, uh, for children being baptized. This is your burial. Uh, and, uh, and indeed, I thought, yeah, that's right. The church needs to give some thought to that. Um, it's romanticism around what we can do and what we cannot do and what the texts say and what they do not say is something that De Taupa raises really, I think, with, uh, with really strong... Um, a strong voice, but uh, it, it, uh, it does take more time and reading and concentration on what is being said there to see where uh, he, is, uh, he is coming from. Often reading through Marcus, the same with Karl Barth, I said to myself, my wife heard me one time, this has to be preached. Uh, and that's, that was the other edge to Marcus' work as well. It's not just digging, he, dig, he can dig into scholarship for ages as long as, you, as long as we want, but at the same time he was concerned to bring that forward and say, if this doesn't get to the pulpit, if you cannot bring this out and live it and, and preach it and say it, then um, we have to wonder whether we've heard it or not because the text is certainly presenting that. So um, apologies for going over my time, but... Uh, started late. Okay. <laughs>